Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Peter Pronovost. Dr. Pronovost is a world-renowned patient safety champion, critical care physician, prolific researcher with over a thousand peer-reviewed publications, innovator, having founded several technology companies, including VizICU and Doctella, and thought leader informing U.S. and global health policy. His transformative work with Checklists to reduce infections has saved thousands of lives and earned him national acclaim, including being named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and a recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. Today, Dr. Pronovost serves as Chief Quality and Clinical Transformation Officer and the Veeley Distinguished Chair in Leadership and Clinical Transformation at University Hospitals Health System in Cleveland, where he continues to lead groundbreaking initiatives. Dr. Pronovost also serves on the President's Council for Science and Technology Patient Safety Working Group, advises the World Health Organization's World Alliance for Patient Safety, and regularly addresses Congress on patient safety issues. He's a strategic advisor for several healthcare technology and venture capital companies and is known as one of the top 25 innovators and most influential executives and physician leaders in healthcare. Dr. Pronovost, Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. It's amazing having you on. You know, you've had such a fantastic career, steadfast in patient safety and quality. And you're well known globally for, like I said in the bio, your intensive care checklist protocol and its results on eliminating catheter infections, as well as for your myriad contributions to the scientific body. I'm really excited to talk to you today about what you're doing today. Uh, but before we get into that, I really wanted to understand, you know, could you share what motivated you to really make a difference in healthcare in the first place and to be a champion for patient safety? Yeah, th thanks, Alan. You know, I got into this work, I think like many of us, out of tragedy. When I was a fourth year medical student at Johns Hopkins, my father died after having been misdiagnosed with a cancer. And while he needed a bone marrow transplant, when they got the diagnosis right, it was too late. And you know, I remember carrying his 80 pound crumbling body up the stairs to a hospital bed and he writhed in pain for a week with the hospice team telling us, oh, we gave him the max dose of narcotics. There's nothing we can do, which we all know. Of course you couldn't. I got convinced as I watched his suffering that patients deserve better than our health system gives them. I went on to train in critical care and did my PhD in outcomes research at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Hopkins. And then a little girl died from my in my health system from a catheter infection, Josie King. And her mother, Sorrell, an amazing woman, came up to me and said, could you tell me that this wouldn't happen to my other daughters? And like many executives, I wanted to give her the spiel, like how great we are. You know, oh yeah, we're doing this. And I had this moral moment and I paused and said, I can't tell you because we don't have a damn program. I mean, our infection rates are high. We're not doing good science. It's Mickey Mouse. I can't tell you, but I will. And that kind of ignited this almost thinking like an engineer with the goal became solving problems. Like what's the outcome you want to solve? Go back and designing systems as opposed to most research is, is A better than B or do you like Coke better than Pepsi? And the problem with that is as wisdom accumulates, you don't package it all together to pull all the levers that you know work. You still pick one piece at a time and no one was really that synthesizer. And so my work came on what I call doing transdisciplinary research is that is unlike interdisciplinary work, which is different disciplines working on a common problem. 
but each stays in their own mental model. So if I'm a behavioral economics, that's what I think about. If I'm like a system engineer, I think about that. Where transdisciplinary is different disciplines working on a common problem through an integrated conceptual model that allows you to align and pull levers so you get a huge, massive risk reduction rather than just the small amount from any one lever. So Peter, I heard so many amazing things about you and your ability to transform culture when it comes to safety in the healthcare system. Because as you know, a lot of healthcare is still primarily fee for service. And a lot of times clinicians are focused on you know the one patient that they're, they're with, but you've been really great at helping people get more into system level thinking. Right. What do you do differently to kind of get people transformed to care about quality at a system level? Yeah, great, great point, Josh, because you're absolutely right. I mean, when I think about these large transformations, they're, and it sounds hokey, but like half evangelism and half science, right? The science has to be good, but it will fail if that's all it is. And, and evangelism alone fails, but you need to com combine those. I'll share with you the journey that we did at university hospitals because it really is, uh, I think, just an amazing, I joined there with really telling them, I want to create a model for value in healthcare, right? That we eliminate these defects and Luckily, there was enough credibility to say, okay, that sounds really cool. At the time, university hospitals, I would say main mission or focus was to meet budget, like a lot of hospitals. You know, I mean, their docs were incentivized for RVUs. There wasn't a lot of passion. Their commitment was largely to being average. And so we said very boldly that we're going to lead in value and we're going to lead with love. And let me tell you what I mean by that is, Love is this energy that uplifts and connects us all, right? And we're all joined together. And what that says is that it drives us to be humble, curious, and compassionate. So we'll look for ideas wherever they come. You don't need an MD after your name to have a good idea. That it allows us to be respectful of everyone and accountable. And so that is an accelerant if you get that culture right for innovation, because you all know innovation occurs when diverse ideas meet and connect and class into each other. And also it allows the sharing of promising practices so that you could have ideas in any one corner of our organization flourish, but also to say, we won't shy away from the tough conversations. We then translated that Josh into say, okay, what does that mean concretely? Because a lot of, you know, health systems say we're going to create the moonshot or, you know, the care of tomorrow today is it was really simple. We said to all of our staff, success is keeping people healthy at home rather than healing at hospital. And no matter what role you have, how are you contributing to that, right? And you think about it like, gosh, that's like a simple vision statement for, for all that we're trying to do in value. And then we started, Josh, even breaking them down further and said, okay, and to do that, we're going to do two simple things. The first is perform, and that is simply make visible and eliminate known defects in value. So defects in value in preventative care, defects in chronic disease management, and not just like for diabetes, one defect like my A1C, but a template in a patient's journey of, am I diagnosed? Half of patients aren't. Am I on the right medicines? Like 8% are because they're so new. Have I controlled my physiology, my A1C, hypertension, and, and cholesterol? Have I screened for and referred for behavioral health services or social needs? And have I avoided needless utilization? And then have I avoided defects in the acute care when, I, when I'm uh, admitted? So 
that was kind of the framework. And then we said, once we do that, we'll transform with technology. But there's so much we can do with just blocking and tackling. And I frankly didn't have a lot of budget. Our health system margin at the time wasn't so big, like most of it. Just do that work. And so how do you then scale this, Josh? Well, we did this transformation model that we call Believe, Belong, Build. And it addresses systematically and simply all the defects and transformation. So the belief was really two parts. The first is get every employee to believe that value is their responsibility and that they are powerful to do something about that. We did that by having every group of employees on every unit make their personal I will statement. Because we asked them to say, if you if that is true that you're powerful to do to improve value, what do you need to stop believing and what do you need to stop believing? And what was so powerful, Josh, is every one of them, what they needed to stop believing was in a, a, some form of lack of love. In other words, they didn't believe their voice mattered. They felt less than, you know, from nurses to our EVS workers, you know, the common message was, I'm going to stop believing I don't matter or my voice doesn't matter and start believing I'm, I'm a key member of the care team, right? Second belief we changed, Joshua, is we said all of our managers will evolve from command and control management, which it almost always is. You know, they hand out someone a checklist and say, you will use this, but they never say why or what the goal is towards unleashing and inspiring people. That is, you will clarify the goal of zero harm and why we're doing this, but you keep your paws off a of how. Inspire frontline people to figure it out. It's messy, but it's the way you get solutions that, you know, that work. And, and we had some stories and metaphors like this beautiful story of Death Valley, you know, it's the most desolate place on earth. Nothing grows. But then in 2004, it had a fluke rainstorm. And a month later, it was this carpet of beautiful multicolored wildflowers. And you say, well, how did that happen? The seeds were always there. They just needed watering. You know, our leaders need to water those brilliant and beautiful seeds that are in all of our employees. Second part, Josh, is belonging. Those connections that I mentioned where innovation flourished don't happen by chance. You literally need to build a structure and a culture that supports them. And we use the metaphor of a fractal structure, you know, fern, snow, flowers, alveoli, capillary. Fractals operate by simple rule. They're an identical shape but varying size structure. And our simple rule is for any project, every higher level of the organization needs to create a table where every lower level has a seat because that allows them to co-create goals it allows horizontal sharing of information and vertical sharing for accountability, right? So we literally map out the whole system and just have the scaffolding for the free flow of ideas. And then the third part, Josh, is building good management system. There's some elegant work by a lot of economists, one particular Nick Bloom that at, at Stanford shows good management really matters and good management is almost entirely absent in healthcare. And I'm sure all of you have seen that in your, in your experience. And, and so we developed what we call this fractal management system, taking on that concept that simply, I mean, it's not rocket science, Josh, but it's a checklist to saying, does your project have clear goals and roles? And, and we use the OKR format, goals formatted and what's your outcome and what are the key results that you have? Do you have an enabling infrastructure? Meaning, do you give people feedback on their key results? Do you make it easy to do those key results, whether tools, technology, or training? And do you have a communication system so people are all aware of sharing ideas and best practices? Third, do you have a peer learning community like I talked about the fractal? And then fourth, 
is do you report transparently and have a shared accountability system? Not accountability, which were mostly is as a leader, I wash my hands of any personal responsibility and say, Josh, why are you doing this? You know, as if we're on different teams. But shared accountability was this decree to say any leader will only hold a lower level leader accountable if they first hold themselves accountable to set that team up to thrive and be successful, right? So they have to make sure that they know the goals, they have the resources. And the results, Justin, just when we just go to them, have just been breathtaking. I mean, it's what led University Hospitals to win the American Hospital Association Quest for Quality Award. But importantly, Josh, and it sounds so simple, like so many ideas, it's the only model that we've seen that now allows us to have a strategy that wins in fee-for-service, which we're still mostly paid, wins in value, and improves access in our community to meet community or population health needs. Because what this keeping people healthy at home, Josh, what we did was on the hospital side, rigorously reduced length of stay for surgical patients. We could talk about that later with some ERAS for medical patients, but then importantly, kept the 50% of medical patients who are better cared for in the community in the community by a lot of different access points of sending them to specialist care or follow up from the emergency department or creating same day specialist from primary care or doing hospital at home or setting up a virtual clinic from the ED so they get a teledoc. And if you have a 20 bed unit, Josh, in a length of stay of five days, all you need is to care for four patients a day to convert that bed to a surgical unit or to close it if you're having labor costs with, you know, with high nurses. So we, you know, we, we flipped about probably eight units in our health system to surgical units through this approach. But that then also keeps patients out of the hospital. So we win in our ACO contracts and our fee-for-service, and it then frees up capacity to meet the unmet demand for things that need care in the hospital. And so it's this virtuous cycle of, you know, we turned our finances around from losing a whole lot last year, over the $250 million, to now being ahead of budget through this integrated approach. I, I, a couple of things I want to unpack there. So one, I love how you, you can somehow be successful with value and quality in, in this environment. That That's amazing. I, I think another thing that really hit me was you've really focused on empowering your team to be effective and autonomous when it comes to improving quality and safety. So what I'm hearing is that even though, Peter, you've been an incredibly important leader and evangelist for, for safety and value at, at UH, if for some reason you aren't around anymore, you have a system in place, you have a culture in place, like that will persist, but it's because you empowered the team to be successful in this environment that even if you're no longer involved, it will still move forward. The train will keep running. And, and that's not always the case at health systems. That, that's just incredible. You, you know, Josh, on that point, I mean, it's really key insight that you got that. My test of have we created a management system with the right culture, is it self-reinforcing? Like I build it and set it going, but then it runs itself, you know, because I can't, first of all, I don't have enough time. If I had to micro manage all these projects, we couldn't do the hundred products we're working on, but we build systems and build good managers that it just, then they auto correct. Absolutely. So, so one of the things that is actually very unique about you, Peter, is you're one of the few healthcare leaders who has operated both the intersection of quality and technology. You're a serial innovator entrepreneur technology and all that. One of the things that you published recently with Dr. Brian DeAnza at UH was this amazing digital health framework to help system leaders better connect digital health to value transformation. So just to summarize for folks um, who are listening, you had three categories um, of digital health solutions. You had 
sort of direct care, delivery, telehealth. Uh, you had digital access and the you had digital monitoring. And in your paper, you showed how you could connect those three buckets to you know, your defects and value and framework exactly. of getting better, getting well, and staying well. Could you maybe share a bit more about like the importance of this framework and how health system leaders can use this to better connect digital health to value? Yeah, Josh, and I'll go back to kind of thinking like an engineer, which means you start with the problem or the outcome and work backwards. You know, that's how we solve many problems in healthcare. I think many people in the digital space, though, did the opposite. They just get enamored with the shiny objects and unpitched, you know, 10 times a week, a widget. And they go look at this cool thing. And the first question, well, what problem are you solving? And often the entrepreneurs don't even know. I mean, they're like, well, I have this capability, this feature. I'm like, okay, great. But that's not what I want to do. What problem you solve? So this framework that we developed, Josh, was really to help health systems. Like, don't get your eyes blurry from the shiny objects. Or there's a lot of cool technology, but use them to solve problems. And those problems generally fall into those four domains. And it's not perfect. The other piece, Josh, that I we put those four domains out, uh, and it was more implicit than, than explicit, Right now, there's thousands of new apps or technologies that health systems are putting in, but I believe that's not sustainable. We will likely have two to four platforms that all healthcare will be on, right? There'll probably be a monitoring platform. I, those three things will likely be, there'll be an access platform that does all that you need. And you know, whether it's direct care or a logistics platform of coordinating care, that will be the other platform. And to get health systems to start to think, yes, I need a platform to solve a problem, but I also then think what other problems you, you could solve. And Josh, let me give you the framework I'm working on now because you would love this. I haven't published it yet, I have to, so your audience could get a sneak peek of it. You know, we, like every health system, are really struggling with labor. I mean, there, there's a shortage of nurses. The traveler nurses are outrageously expensive. They often aren't of the same caliber, so and they don't know the culture, so there's safety risks and, you know, and harm is going up. So to address that, we developed this four-part strategy for solving our labor uh, issues. We're starting with nurses and care managers together, but you can use it for anything. The first part is what work could we just stop? Give you an example. I sat with 50 nurses and said, what policies do we have that the burden exceeds the benefit and should just be gotten rid of, right? Literally in an hour, they identified policies that consume 50% of their time and the vast majority of them were just our own policies. Yes, some were CMS, and we've communicated with them. They've been highly responsive to engage, but most were just ours. So we literally did a process of revising like 80 policies and then taking them out of the 1,500 order sets in which they were embedded, right? You know, another thing we should just stop is nurses spend 24% of their time hunting for supplies, right? There's technology that does asset tracking. Stop that. Second step in the thing is if I can't stop it, could I automate it, right? Whether it's RPM or variety of technology that you're all keenly aware of. And so we're looking at the discharge process. What parts of that could just be automated and a lot could. And third step is, okay, if I can't automate it, what could either be outsourced more productively or allocated to another caregiver that is maybe less expensive or more available, right? And so that's all of our work plan, but I'll you know, give an example on that. We're looking at remote discharge. And what we found is that the nurse, bedside nurse has a role in discharge, but every patient's seen by a care coordinator nurse to do the discharge. And when I try to 
reduce that duplication, there was a lot of fear of you just dumping work on me, one or the other. And so I said, okay, well, let's just outsource it, but I'll take two roles into one when I outsource, right? Where there's only one outsource nurse, you're going to do combine the work at 50% labor savings just from doing that. And then the final step is, and probably the most important, which work needs to stay sacred at the bedside? Like it's essential needs to be there. And you know, that simple framework of stop it, automate it, outsource, and then keep sacred. We're looking at a variety of different functions through that. I think one of the unique things that you mentioned was a lot of folks today just jump me to how do we automate it? But your first question was, wait, wait, can we stop it? Do we even have to do it at exactly all? Right. I think a lot of folks miss that step. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, and you, it was, honestly, it was labor intensive, but literally we did the brainstorming, but then we had to go revise our policies to say, okay. And then we said, okay, that's great. We did it. But those policies, and most of them were around frequency of monitoring for nurses or documenting, were embedded in a number of order sets that we had to go and search for and then pull out. But it's an example of almost that transdisciplinary, because if you have a, a systematic framework for each of the steps in, in, in a task, the other piece, Josh, of looking through that is we got out of the mindset of let's focus on role, i.e. nurse, care transition, and task. So I don't care whose name on it, as long as it's within their scope of practice, what is the task we need to do and how do we either get rid of it or outsource it? And it, it just, there's so much energy of our teams doing this. I love that, Peter. It actually goes in line with, you touched on it earlier, but these prevailing beliefs and some of these beliefs that need to be challenged. And that was in your book, Safe Patient Smart Hospitals. That was one of the very first components of your framework was what prevailing beliefs do we have today that need to be challenged first before we can stop a certain initiative or, or go ahead with uh, whatever innovation it is. I was curious, kind of applying that same framework to today's clinical transformation and digital efforts. What are maybe one or two prevailing beliefs that you see today that you think need to be challenged? Yeah, great. And Alan and Josh, just, you know, one kind of interesting concept, you mentioned the checklist work. After we got this, you know, crazy success across the country in several countries, I had this hunch to say checklists are good, but they're not Harry Potter's wand. I mean, there's something deeper went on. And so we partnered with some anthropologists and sociologists in one a friend and very prominent one, Mary Dixon Woods in the UK. And we interviewed clinicians and asked what was different with this. And, and we published it in the Millbank Quarterly, a paper called Explaining Michigan. And when we talked to them, you could immediately see in their eyes what they believed in their heart. What they all said is we changed our belief, that we started this thinking these infections are inevitable and I'm just a fill in the blank. I'm a resident, I'm a fellow, I'm a nurse, even I'm attending. And when they, they say they fit in. And that, that's why it's part of this evangelism. When that belief switched, it went from, no, no, these are preventable and I could do something about it. And at that point, the checklist almost becomes a material, they'll figure it out. But if you don't change that belief, you don't get there. So I think there's a lot of beliefs around the digital piece that we have to really rethink. The first is, it's about the technology rather than the problem, right? Second belief is that technology alone without really rigorous usability is going to work, right? I mean, these things fail for usability. Third belief is pilots are enough. Like health systems are riddled with pilots that work that never go anywhere, right? And they're, and because I think because it's too often owned by the ventures or the innovators rather than operators. And 
you know, we have a model that combines the two. So the, the innovators have a role in problem definition, diligence, and running the pilot, but the operators commit that these are big problems that we're willing to solve right from the very beginning. And then once the pilot, we do an ROI analysis, and then the operators already have the commitment we to scale it. And then I'd also think that so many innovators don't believe in their own self-efficacy, you know, because many of the innovation are younger physicians or nurses, and they don't see themselves in a role, but yet they're the most wise about how technology can solve problems. And I think we have to get more leaders to change the belief that almost buying into reverse innovation and reverse mentoring, that have someone who's young and more tech facile to work with you to say, okay, how do I think about solving this problem and what technologies could do? But you know, lead, younger, especially people see themselves as leaders in their organizations, not formal leaders. It, you know, Alan, so many people think that title is what makes the difference. And, and I tell people all the time, a title allows you to do two things. It allows you to call a meeting and pick up the check after dinner. Nobody follows you for a title. They follow you because they believe in the vision or they trust in the purpose, right? And you don't need it, that fancy title off James to do that. You just need hope. I really love that, that feedback beer. I mean, I think that's really empowering for folks who, I think your point is that, yes, obviously having a title gives you some, maybe some extra influence, some extra you know, street cred in the organization, but you can still make progress as long as we're motivated and, and willing to put in the hard work. You adapted your checklist framework to the healthcare tech startup world with Doctella, that uh, a digital health company you co-founded that for folks who aren't familiar, used patient-centered checklists, education and data tracking to engage patients outside the four walls of the hospital. And eventually you, you exited to, to Massimo. Uh, you know, more and more physicians, as you've noted, are, are taking the leap to get into launching health tech startups. What's your biggest piece of advice to physicians who are looking to make the leap to, to launching a startup? Yeah. First, I think the most important part, Josh, and, and it's really key, is focusing on a problem relevant to patients and health delivery. And if I look at the impact of investments or allocating capital through ventures in healthcare, it's made a whole lot of money for health plans doing things that quite frankly, most of them had really little impact or even negative impact on health delivery systems or patients. And I get it's the economics and a lot of them make money coding Medicare Advantage patients better, right? Or, that, these, or carving out niche patients. But you know, 50% of health systems have negative margins. And I don't think integrated health systems are going to go away. They serve vital roles in most communities in this country. When we get hit by a car, you have your appendix out or whatever those things are. So I think there's a need to rebalance the problems that we solve such that the, the benefits accrue directly to patients and our health systems is, is the number one. Uh, second is, I would say, make sure that you're clear about what problem are you solving. And because in many cases, Josh, with all due respect, the technology is almost a commodity nowadays, right? So, I mean, I mean especially with ChatGPT or other AI things, and even like the data integration. In the past, that was a secret sauce because you had a handful of programmers who know how to do the magic. Now, it's really easy to move and connect data. And, and I'm not trivializing it. It's got to be done right. But the key is, how do I get this problem to solve? And then also fitting it into a workflow that clinicians will use. And that, I think, is the really key to producing a technology that adds value. 
I think it's a great insight. I think to your point, a lot of innovators focus too much on the tech and not enough on the business problem or the workflow. And, and you can't ignore those in, in healthcare. That that makes a ton of sense. So Al and I have both personal interest in enhanced recovery after surgery or ass. And you know, we we know from Dr. Heather McFarland, the team at UH, that your team has done an incredible job rolling out ERAS across the system in the middle of the pandemic. Could you maybe Correct. tell us a bit more about how you made that so successful and how far you've come? Yeah, Josh, thank you. It is just breathtaking. So, yeah, I opened with kind of our vision of shortening length of stay so we could have more access, you know, and as you all know, if I reduce surgical length of stay by 50%, that's the equivalent of building 50% more beds for free, right? It's this just the way the math works out. So we wanted to implement ERAS and we started planning and then COVID hit. And, you know, why not turn a crisis into an opportunity? Because we were, some of our ORs weren't working. So I pulled the team together and said, I want you to plan for a system-wide rollout of ERAS. And since there's so many of you that aren't working, I just, I don't want to just do one service line. So we picked 15 service lines that were all there's evidence for, and we did them in cohorts of five. So three groups of five and but we used, it sounds delusional, but it's the beauty of the fractal, right? We had an overall system team. Each service line had a team and each hospital had an overall lead and then a lead for each service line, right? So you can see the fractal just replicating. So it allows you to, to scale very, very fast. We built the protocols and then tested them out. What really accelerated our work is when we first started, we didn't have the data systems to give feedback about adherence or enrollment in, in ERAS. So we didn't really know. When we built it, we were at about 25% across our system for all 15 service lines. We're now up around 80%. I mean, it's, and again, using our management system, we give individual surgeon feedback of are you enrolled? And if they're zero, most of the time is they don't know how to enroll it. So we have someone reach out to them and say, hey, here's how you do it. If you don't believe in it, let's have a talk because the data is overwhelming. What it's done, Josh, is we've taken our surgical length of stay, and it's, it's under review for publication, from 6.2 days down now to 1.8. Like, I mean, unbelievable reduction in length of stay. And our complications are dramatic. I mean, it varies by the product line. But like, you know, for all those service lines, just profound reduction in complications, in cost, in mortality from this relatively simple process. When you set a target, like 15 service lines in the middle of a pandemic to roll out ERAS, were you actually thinking, okay, like we're going to do 15 or is it more like, hey, let's set ambitious goals that, hey, we hit 10, it, we hit 10 because we set a goal of 15. I'm just curious because like, yes. I argue your team, I'd be like, oh my gosh, 15. I don't know. <laughs> you know, Josh, it's so funny because that's often a real reaction. Like if you say a big goal, people like said, oh my God, Pierre, like we can't do this or setting a hard target, but that's that shared accountability. Cause it's not like I walk away and don't wash my hands. I said, okay, you know, let's, here's how we're going to make this feasible. Okay. Let's just start with one to get the prototype and then we'll get leaders for these other ones. And they could use that to go create it. And then once we get the first three or five, we'll roll those out, learn what we need, what was not right on the protocols, what's the best way to engage people. And then when you're ready, we'll start on the next cohort. And then when that is okay, we'll start on the third quarter. So it's really this culture of learning and improving. And, and as you can imagine, the cycle time just got radically small. The first one took a little bit of time, but they got the kinks out. 
Second one said, oh, probably 90% is the same, right? It doesn't need to be reinvented. I could use a lot of it, some tweaks. Third one, again, even faster, started rolling them out and some kinks in the beginning we learned. And then right after that, it just exploded. And they're like, oh, Peter, you know, I think we can combine the second and third cohorts into one. This is just like, we got this down now. And so I think that you make a great point because I think in a lot of these transformation projects at times go from 30,000 foot vision, but often as you can see, you know, a thousand or a hundred foot designing interventions, giving feedback and, you know, really building this, the management system so that then it's self-sustaining. Well, I think the thing that you do differently, Peter, is that like, I think a lot of health systems will have just focused on this pilot one ERS service line. You said, no, 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 we're, we're, we're going to scale. And yes, we're, we are going to pilot it like maybe in one or two to get started and build that prototype and, and learn from it. But you already made it clear, hey, like the goal is to get to 15. Whereas I think other folks would Jeff, say- that's, you know, like a, a pet peeve of mine because I mean, I publish a lot and I'm an, you know, an academic, but it frustrates me because it, the goal of academics almost seems it, the output is to get a grant or to publish a paper. And then you like wash your hands and you think you've done it. And like, no, 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 okay, that's not the goal. The goal is to get the benefits of that learning in to, to patients. And that means you need to scale. And so every pilot that I do, every project, I think scale from the very beginning. And why that's so helpful, it forces me to simplify, right? Because so many of these complex projects that you do in a pilot, they're either way too expensive to scale or they're not practical enough given like the complexities. And then I'd say like, why do it? If it's not going to be a model you can scale, you're wasting your time. Let's focus in on something that is scalable. And I guess part of it too is if you can design, here's what it would look like at scale, you can work backwards and say, hey, what hypotheses do I have to validate in the pilot so that I know if I hit those and, and, and those well, I can actually scale. Whereas I think most folks just just pilot something and then try to figure out scale later, which is kind of- Completely, somebody... yeah. That, so that's exactly what we say. What is the scalable model? It's the engineering mindset of solving problems. And then I go backwards and say, okay, these are the things I have to prove for it. Amazing. And it's, I mean, it's all those things we said. It's, will the nurses or docs use it? Which is a really key thing. Does the tech work? Does it actually solve the problem? Could I make money selling it? You know I mean? Like all those different components have to be solved for, but you, you design it in the beginning. Peter, you actually recently launched a new podcast called Micro Moments with Peter. So I was wondering, first of all, what are micro moments and what are one or two micro moments that you're willing to share with our audience that have really impacted your views on clinical transformation and quality? Yeah, so great, Alan. I mentioned earlier that I believe that um, love is the secret of uh, great care. Uh, it's also, I think, the secret of problem solving, right? Because if you respect people, which is a different topic, but enormous need in our culture today, because I think the biggest risk we have, we, we lost the ability to solve problems collaboratively because uh, we don't see each other as connected in love. We see them less than. But anyway, so I was a student of that. And uh, Barbara Friedrichsen, a psychologist, wrote a book called Love 2.0, where she studies the biology of love, literally what makes oxytocin, the snuggle hormone spike. And what she found is that love exists in micro moments of positive connection, right? The idea is I feel warm towards you, you feel warm towards me, and we generate energy, resonate, like you can feel that. And so talking about this daunting thing of love, we the way we simplify is just, it's lived in micro moments, go create a micro moment. So that is 
looking at a homeless person and smiling at them respectfully. It's putting an armor on a colleague who just made a mistake and, and sitting and listening. It's sitting with a patient who is scared and really connecting empathically with what they have to say. It's that energy when you're brainstorming and solving a problem, right? And you just like, you can almost feel the, like the flow or the effervescence of that, uh, you call it love, but the energy literally flowing through you to get that brainstorming sessions that, you know, is such a big part of the innovation. And so the podcast is designed to say, how do we surface these beautiful micro moments and show how they're used to make healthcare better and hopefully present it in a very approachable way because they're not this, I mean, yes, we do big transformation, but transformations made up of thousands of these little micro moments that just cascade and snowball and infect each other in the organization. Love that. So Peter, I guess one other topic I'd love to get your take on is you're, you're obviously a very big proponent of supporting the care delivery systems. I think, I think like you, we believe that health systems are still going to be central to care, even as you know more things happen in the ambulatory environment. And even as like you're seeing big tech like Amazon and, and CVS trying to get into healthcare and all that. But I, I just really don't think they're ever going to be the experts at caring for folks who are, are truly acutely ill or they're not going to care as much about population health as, as a health system would. But but how do you think health systems should be reacting given the, these changes in the competitive environment with the Amazons and the CBSs coming into play? Yeah, so great, great points. I mean, it's m- many ways that strategy that I opened up with or we, we talked about earlier, that's really survival is number one, our cost structures are bloated. We have to get our cost structure down. I mean, to give an example, we, like almost every other health system in America, lose a ton of money on every medicine admission, right? You can't survive doing that. I and mean, we try to get them out, but it's also a financially imperative. Our, our system loses about $50 million on medical admissions and they don't need to be there. And there's other inefficiencies and waste and defects that need to be solved for. And technology has a rule. So the first is get your cost structure down, which is some overhead, great productivity gains, complications, length of stay, all those things that I mentioned to you in our strategy. Two is evolve your care models from being reactive and transactional to being proactive and relational. So right now, you know, we've focused all of our quality and safety efforts. It's to be transactional. So I show up in the ED, I do what I do in the ED, and I don't care about anything else, right? Then I get handed off to a cardiologist or a hospitalist and or a surgeon and, and they do their thing, but they don't think about okay, well, what's the next step? What's that? How do I even connect them? And so a lot of our efforts are, we call almost this web of well-being. How do we connect across the care continuum in hardwired ways? Third is we have to get our access up and our experience with access much, much better. I mean, it's we're almost embarrassing though how easy it is to schedule almost anything else in the world and how hard it is to get at our systems. And then lastly, I think make sure that we're leisurely focused on maximizing value. I believe deeply that whoever provides the highest value is going to win, just like we do in other industries. You know, these CVSs and others had hard off things because most health delivery systems had pretty shitty value. I mean, they didn't have good value, right? And they're, and it, it could be better. Or they had assumed value in their own minds, but it wasn't either in the consumer mind or impaired data. And so now I think if you could show that you have great value, I'll give you an example of that. You know, we kind of took ERAS a step further and made what we call centers of excellence and, and 
what they are is for like joint and spine and bariatric surgery. In addition to using protocols, we have easy access, one number to call in. We have navigation where within 48 hours of you getting scheduled, a nurse is on a call or on a digital call with you answering your questions, making sure you have your paper. They stay with you every step of the way of having appropriateness criteria because we know 30% of every procedure is not needed, but nobody does appropriateness where we say, nope, that's a defect in value if you have an operation that you don't need. For spine surgery, it's 44% or 50%. Wow. So we have criteria that say, you don't meet these up. And it's not rocket science. Does your pain match your imaging? And have you done six weeks of physical therapy? But if you don't, we won't operate on you. And then do you have protocols? So our outcomes were so good in that we sell those to commercial payers, I mean, to private employers, direct to employer contracting. As you know, in health systems, we make our entire margin from commercial payers. We lose money in all the government payers. That's the only way we make money. So this is a way where like that perfect story of whoever provides the highest value wins, the employers love them, right? They, we guarantee them a fixed price for that because we know we have complications. And even, Josh, if you can believe that when we start, we limit the number of surgeons within our own health system to two. That's what we start. We say, you get the protocols down. And if the others have the same outcomes and they agree to use these protocols, you can join into the centers of excellence. But if you don't, and we transparently show for the, all of our procedures, our centers of excellence surgeons, even compared to our non-centers of excellence at UH, have lower length of stay, lower readmissions, better outcomes, and far better than the national benchmarks. And I guess part of it too is uh, surgeons especially are competitive and data focused. So, you know, don't, don't give them opinions, give them data. And That's and exactly right. Peter, just being mindful of your time, we're going to flip over to the Fast Five lightning round. It's just five quick questions to get to know you a little bit better for our audience. Sure. The first question we have is, what is your favorite book or a book you've gifted the most? There's a number of them because I love books. I would probably say Multipliers <laughs> or Everybody Matters. There's two. They're basically the philosophy of empower people, believe in people. Although like at a different level, I love the OKRs. And I love a lot of the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Buddhist monk who writes a lot about love and, and some Buddhist philosophies of how to bring love into the world. Love it. Question two that we have, who is a person either dead or alive who you'd love to meet? Oh, oh so many. I would have loved to meet the Buddha. I would have loved to have met Abraham Lincoln. I would have loved to have met Ronald Reagan, and probably Einstein is just so creative. Yeah. Awesome. Question three is a bit different. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? The ability to read people's minds. <laughs> awesome. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? That the secret of great healthcare is love. Many people will say love has no business in healthcare. <laughs> and I say... Karen is the business of healthcare. Yeah, that's awesome. Last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? Uh, I think the American Revolution. It was just such mm. this amazing creative time and of bringing like philosophy of, and the concepts of liberal democracy, even though we didn't live up to it with slavery, but that whole creating the, you know those those fundamental principles based on the English and ultimately Greek and Roman principles uh, that set the stage for this country. Yeah. 
Amazing. Well, again, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this podcast today. You've sprinkled so many pearls of wisdom throughout the conversation. That's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, you can visit www.seamless.md. Peter, Dr. Protovos, again, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me and keep up your amazing work. Mm -hmm.